The issue of posthumous reproduction, the retrieval and use of the gametes of a deceased person, is fraught with ethical, legal, and religious debate. During this panel, bioethicist Lauren Flicker will discuss the legal and ethical implications of these issues. Afterwards, Rabbi Daniel Rapp will present some of the halakhic questions of post-mortem reproduction. Lauren Flicker received her education in law and bioethics through Oberlin College and the University of Pennsylvania. Before she joined the Center for Bioethics, Professor Flicker was a fellow in the Cleveland Fellowship for Advanced Bioethics. In 2010, she was a postdoctoral fellow in the University of Pennsylvania and an adjunct for Earl Mack School of Law at Drexel University. She's currently an assistant professor of epidemiology and population health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the associate director for the certificate and master's program in bioethics at Montefiore Einstein Center for Bioethics. Her research focus is on reproductive ethics, ethical issues that arise in end-of-life care, ethics consultations, and physician-assisted suicide. Rabbi Daniel Rapp earned his bachelor's degree, cum laude, from Yeshiva University in 1990. He went on to receive his Juris Doctor from Columbia University Law School, where he received the Harlan Fisk Scholar for academic excellence twice. For two and a half years, Rabbi Rapp studied at Yeshivat Karim Biyavne in Israel and was ordained by Yeshivat Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan of YU with Yora Yora and Yadin Yadin Smicha. Rabbi Rapp now teaches at the Irving I. Stone Beit Midrash program and the Mazur Yeshiva program at Yeshiva University while also serving as the rabbi of the East Denver Orthodox Synagogue. Rabbi Rapp is a judge at the Beit Din of America and has given lectures on a wide range of topics that all involve the interface of halacha and the modern world. Without further ado, Ms. Lauren Flicker. Or my slides getting loaded because that's exciting. Thank you so much for having me. I'm getting over a cold, so my apologies if I'm a little difficult to... There we go. Okay. So, again, thank you so much for having me today. This is one of my favorite topics in bioethics because the law is fairly silent and the ethical issues are very complex. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'll try not to cough into the mic. Let's see if the clicker works. All right, I have no disclosures. Must say it. So, let's make sure we're all on the same page. So, we're talking about post-mortem reproduction. There's sort of two, two buckets we could be talking about. One is post-mortem conception. So, we're talking about post-mortem conception, broadly. That is about the use of gametes after death, or the use of embryos after death. But we're specifically talking about areas where somebody might have frozen their sperm, somebody might have frozen embryos, and then passes away, and the living partner, the living family members are using the gametes, or using the embryos after death to conceive. The law's given us some guidance in this area. So, so this is an interesting issue, but it's one that's largely been, been uh, settled by law. Excuse me. The other, which is a particular favor of mine, is post-mortem sperm retrieval. So we still have the same questions about use of, of gametes after death. There's also a broader question about retrieval of sperm um, and questions about procurement. So we talk about post-mortem sperm retrieval. Sperm is viable for about 24 hours after death. 
it involves uh, the gametes are retrieved via surgical intervention. Uh, usually a request happens in the hospital when somebody, usually a younger man, has died from a sudden death. Usually a motor vehicle accident, but something sudden where somebody is healthy and young, they die, and their partner, or more rarely their parents, more with more controversy as well, but their partner typically requires, use, requires the gametes be retrieved to later be used for, uh, for conception. And it's not actually known how frequently this happens in the United States, but it's been happening for about 20 years. The first uh, successful attempt was in 1998. And <coughs> when we're talking about postmortem sperm retrieval, it seems like the two most important stakeholders, legally and ethically, are the deceased and his partner. With the deceased, we care a great deal about his procreative liberty, about whether he would have desired to have or to not have children after his death. We also care about his bodily integrity, about whether or not it's acceptable to cut into his body after his death. And then also, less exciting but still important issues of property uh, and disposition of his property after his death. With his spouse, with his partner, there are also important questions about her program liberty. This may be her last, or well, this will be her last, and it may be her only opportunity to have children with this partner. But there are, in fact, a great number of stakeholders when we talk about this topic. There are the other surviving family members and extant children who may have significant emotional, uh, emotional ties to the question of new children, financial concerns. There is the potential child. We care about the welfare of children that will be created and that we are looking at their best interest. The clinicians might experience moral distress at participating in, in postmortem sperm retrieval. And the state has an interest in protecting children and in the orderly distribution of property. There are also significant legal concerns. There's the question of, of financial concerns about inheritance, social security. I'll talk a little more about this, but this is one of the most settled areas of law in this area. There's also, as I mentioned ethically, but also legally, the fundamental right to or not to procreate and questions about ownership or disposition of the sperm. When somebody uh, banks sperm or embryos prior to their death, they usually at this point sign a form saying what they hope will happen after they die, if they hope their spouse will be able to use it. That wasn't the case probably even 10 years ago, but it is now. It's something that's regularly accounted for. When somebody hasn't accounted for that, when we're talking about postmortem sperm retrieval, it's not always clear who may request the sperm. It's not always clear what the hospital must do. Broadly, internationally, postmortem sperm retrieval is banned in most Western countries. It's banned in France, Germany, Australia, Sweden. France also bans the use of postmortem conception. So in France, if a man has died, uh, but prior to his death, banged his sperm, said, I want my wife to be able to use this in the event of my death, even if it's explicitly written out, and there are no questions about whether or not he understood what he was saying, she would not be permitted to use the sperm. There was actually a case just this year where a woman successfully sued for the right to remove her husband's, her deceased husband's frozen gametes out of the country to be used. 
but this was a novel case, and generally France is quite opposed to this idea in general. It's uh, legal but regulated in England and Israel. Uh, England and Israel take two very different approaches, I'll get to that in a moment. And there is no regulation whatsoever in the United States or Belgium, really leaving professional societies and hospitals to be the uh, threshold, to be the gatekeepers. So as I mentioned, Israel and England are two countries where there are regulation for postmortem sperm retrieval. So England takes the tactic that not knowing what a person would have wanted, we should err on the side of not making a man a father against his will. So they only permit postmortem sperm retrieval if a man has explicitly put in writing that his wife may retrieve his sperm after his death for use. Israel takes a different tactic. It views that uh, postmortem reproduction is permitted. A female, only a female partner, married or unmarried, may request it. So retrieval is fairly simple. If someone dies, uh, a female partner may ask for its retrieval. Because as you said, if somebody is, once somebody dies, the clock starts ticking about 24 hours. For use, you must have a court order. But unlike England, and really unlike the United States, there's a presumption in favor of reproduction. So there is an assumption that somebody would want to be a father, would want to give his partner the opportunity to be a parent. There is more controversy about whether or not parents may request the use of their uh, deceased child's gametes for use uh, for somebody else to conceive. The United States, as I mentioned, we're not so good about this. We don't have a lot of regulation. We're, we're not quite clear on what to do. We have, as I mentioned, spent some time thinking about inheritance. We're good at this in the United States. This is something where there have been several lawsuits and eventually made its way up to the Supreme Court. So we actually have somewhat standard uh, regulation across the United States. So Social Security, we're all familiar with Social Security, it's a federal benefit. But it's available uh, under the Social Security Act. Social Security benefits are available to the children of wage earners. And that seems pretty straightforward. I know who my biological father is. Not everyone does, but many people do. Uh, if my father dies, I know I am his child. Um, so I, uh, if I were a minor, would be available for benefits. But family definitions are actually state law. What makes a family might be different from state to state. We saw this as a big issue before gay marriage was legalized via the Supreme Court. So what that means is the definition of what is a child changes from state to state. And according to the Supreme Court, a child may only get Social Security benefits if they are legally, not merely biologically, but legally the child of the deceased. And this is also the case with inheritance. So the Uniform Parentage Act has thought about posthumous conception. And it says that a child is legally the child of the deceased if the deceased consented in writing to having their gametes used post-mortem, um, and they are the genetic parent. But states have, not all states have adapted the Uniform Parentage Act, and some have narrowed it. They've created more barriers. In New York, for instance, there are time limits. Most states have time limits. New York says that you are only the legal child for the purpose of inheritance, for the purpose of Social Security benefits, if a child is conceived within 24 months 
of the father's death or born within 33 months. So the law is fairly straightforward, but very different from state to state. So bigger question, though, is this question of retrieval, over who may request it and what barriers might hospitals place. So we don't know what sperm is legally. This is an interesting legal question. This is a very exciting legal question because it's not really clear what it is. So one idea is maybe sperm is property. And that's been supported by some cases. So Hecht v. Superior Court was a case in California in the 1990s. And this was a case where a, a gentleman, um, William Kane, went to a sperm bank, froze his sperm, wrote uh, in, the, in the document for the sperm bank that it was to go to his girlfriend, Deborah Hecht, upon his death. He went home, he wrote a letter saying that he had just frozen sperm, it was to go to his girlfriend, Deborah Hecht, upon his death, and then he killed himself. He had adult children. They were not pleased about Deborah Hecht having access to the sperm. They did not want her to have children. They were not interested in sharing their inheritance, and there were probably some other challenging issues going on as well, so they sued. And at first, the court gave the vials of sperm to the children. They said this is, they have a greater right to it than she does. But she appealed, and it went back to the court, and the court ultimately said, no, sperm is like property, but it's special. Gametes are special. So if he designated it in his will to his girlfriend, then she is the only person who may be the recipient of it. So he can designate to her. She can choose whether or not to use it, but she can't give it back to the bank to donate to somebody else. She can't do anything with it. Only he may decide what happens to it. So special property. So okay. Maybe that is a legal paradigm we can work with. It tells us what to do when we know what the deceased would have wanted. And it helps with use, but it doesn't tell us a lot about retrieval. It doesn't give us a lot of information there. So one other paradigm might be organs. That, that could be helpful. We take organs from the deceased, and it's one thing where family members may consent to the withdrawal of organs from the deceased to be used for other purposes. And in fact, there was a case in the matter of Daniel Thomas Christie where the court found that sperm should be treated under the, Uni the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. And this was a, a tragic case of a young man, 23, who died in a motorcycle accident. And his parents wanted to access his gametes to give to his fiancée. So they sued, and the court said, yes, this, this, we can use this. This looks like something that could be applied for the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. But the challenge is, is that the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act allows for families to consent for retrieval, but it's a little bit more specific when we talk about use. It says that organs can be used, organs or tissue, can be used for transplant, research, therapy, or education. Well, this use is not education, and it's not research. Uh, so perhaps therapy is the best definition. And therapy, under the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, is defined as use of donated part for amelioration or treatment of a disease or condition. It doesn't really fit here. It doesn't quite work. So the UAGA may tell us that we can retrieve, but it doesn't help us with use. So neither of these paradigms really work. So the law has not quite spoken. 
This is an image from a paper by Baum et al. that looked at, surveyed institutional policies across the United States. Now, as I mentioned, we don't know how often this happens. Not a lot. Uh, so they surveyed about 49 different hospitals and got back nine policies that they looked at. Not a big sample size. But it did give an idea of how these policies might look. So they found that there's about two categories. One is uh, something that they call the limited role protocol. So if somebody had put in writing that their gametes might be used after death, then they're, uh, they'll take the gametes, and the wife can use it, their hands are clean. The other, they called a family-centered protocol, says that in the absence of written consent, substitute judgment by the partner is accepted. But they have a catch. They tend to hold the, the gametes for six months to one year before the partner is allowed to access it. And they say it's so that she can have time to grieve. But this, as I mentioned, is a problem because while the law is silent, are they allowed to hold it legally? Are they permitted? Is it theirs to hold? It's, problem, it's a problem ethically as well, because if there's going to be a waiting period, we need to have a valid articulated reason. So a waiting period to take time to assess whether or not the man would have wanted this, that's acceptable. But a waiting period to allow a woman to cope or grieve is not. It's not reasonably related to safeguarding the man's autonomy. It's not really reasonably related to any ethical or medical reason other than waiting. It's perhaps a little bit gendered. And in the meantime, a woman's fertility window might close in that six months to one year. So the greatest ethical barrier in the United States is trying to figure out what is the greater burden. Making a man a father when he wouldn't have wanted to be, or preventing him from being a father, preventing him from having the opportunity to pass along his genes. And as I mentioned the law of Israel has taken the stance that preventing a man from being a father is the greater burden. Earlier policies in the United States and the law in England take the stance that making a person a father against their will is in fact a greater burden. And as long as the law is silent, this is the essential, essential ethical question that hospital policies must answer. And this is the essential question that ethicists must answer. Thank you very much. Good morning. I'm sorry to say I'm not as excited about the topic as uh, the previous speaker. In general, when faced with an issue such as the one that we are dealing with today, basically there have to be three different questions that are asked. Question number one is, is this allowed? Halachically, legally, is this something which we allow you to do? Two is, if we allow it, or even if we don't allow it, and you do it, what is the outcome of this? And finally, even if it is allowed, should you do it? Those are the three questions I wanted to deal with. The first issue of whether or not you have the ability to procure sperm posthumously in order to use it afterwards 
The issue halachri that comes up is regarding, in general, this is an issue with sperm procurement in general, whether or not this is allowed. When we talk about procurement, so I'm not the doctor here, in fact, I think none of us are the doctor here. The issue is how do you procure the sperm? Obviously, there is something that has to be done to a dead body in order to procure, to extract the sperm from the body. In general, there is a concept in halacha known as nivel hames, that there's a certain amount of holiness that is involved in the human body, and after the point of death, if the body is treated with the utmost respect. This is not a new issue, it's not even a new medical ethics issue, it's not an ethical issue. In fact, the old problem of autopsies is directly related to this. In general, we take a very negative approach towards autopsies in general, unless, of course, there is some overwhelming reason why we would allow an autopsy. In general, the Jewish approach is that body upon death should be buried as soon as possible, and should be done so in a way that the body is kept intact, even bodily fluids that are lost after death should be buried as well. And also the utmost respect has to be shown to the body. The process by which sperm is extracted after death is problematic. However, just like by autopsies, there might be reasons to allow given what's at stake here. When it came to autopsies, the major issue that was discussed was the greater good. In particular, if we're dealing with a new disease, I remember when I was a young man, Legionnaire's disease, talk about AIDS, talk about a disease that the medical community knows very little about, and there are multiple people that are suffering from this disease. And perhaps an autopsy, an ability to look at the body, to look at the blood, and to get an understanding as to what the disease was doing, perhaps would open up the possibility to a cure to save people that are currently alive and suffering from the disease. Given that this, uh, today's event is dedicated to Rabbi Templer, I will note that one of the prime important chuvas on the topic was written to Rabbi Templer, not surprisingly by his father-in-law, some five, six decades ago, where there is this discussion. And of course the discussion predates that as well. There is the question of Meso Mutolafanov, that there's a dead body there, but there's also a chai, and potential that one could save the other. And in fact, in the event that there is a real possibility that a life could be saved by studying, and even by cutting up the person who has just deceased, in fact, there are many opinions, I would say the majority of the opinions, would allow this. So too, in this case, we are dealing with a situation where there's not another person who is suffering, but there is a life that hangs in the balance, that being the life of the unborn child. Therefore, perhaps, there is a reason to say that's considered a tzorach, this is considered an overwhelming need, which would allow this process to happen. So that is one issue that has to be dealt with. The second issue is not so much an autopsy issue, but it's more the issue of donating one's bodies to science.
if one decides to donate one's body to science, so again, there might be an indirect help towards health of somebody. Perhaps the medical student who will be studying this body will become the better doctor. And down the line, somebody's life may be changed, saved by it, but it's not quite the same as the autopsy of somebody who's suffering from the same disease. On the other hand, though, there is something, an additional layer of heter, which perhaps can be given in. Here again, I'm not talking about the larger issue. I'm not saying that one is allowed to donate their body to science. However, there is a concept of mechila that I have gotten up, and I've made it clear that my personal opinion is that I don't mind that you do this. In fact, I would appreciate if you would do this. Ultimately, a person has a certain degree of control over their own body. Not absolute. But therefore, if the concern of an autopsy, if the concern of use of the body is that it is an embarrassment to the person whose body was to be lying out there, if somehow or another this is something that we're done for the sake of the person who has passed away, therefore when the person writes a will, when the person makes it eminently clear that they want this to happen, the concern is much less of a concern. And again, that comes into play in this case as well. In the event that the person who passed away made it clear that they would like this procedure to happen, that they made it clear that they would hope to have progeny, the person dies without children, and they would hope that going down that there will be someone to carry on their legacy, and therefore they want this to happen, that too will be a case of mechila where the person has clearly made it clear that this is not an embarrassment to me, this is not something that I mind, but rather quite the opposite, this is something that I very much desire. The third issue out there, which has to be considered here, is goes directly to the uh, tshuva that Rabbi Feinstein wrote to Rabbi Tendler, was what is considered nivel hames. When we talk about that we are somehow or another acting inappropriately with the cadaver, what does that involve? I believe the question that Rabbi Tendler was talking about in his question to his father-in-law was the case of a toxicology report after a person died. A person is found, uh, this happens unfortunately uh, commonly in the city of New York, if a body is found in an apartment, it is standard to do an autopsy in order to determine the reason of death. And oftentimes, they don't need a full autopsy, but a toxicology report would be more than enough just to see what's in the bloodstream. Was this a drug overdose? What caused the death? That should be enough. The question that was presented to Moshe Feinstein is, the mere removal of blood, is that considered nivel hames? And in fact, Moshe was makel in that case. He was lenient in his decision by saying that, in fact, this is something that we do to living people. Living people give blood on a regular basis, and this is not considered to be anything that's inappropriate. And therefore, anything that you would do to a living person, and it would be considered appropriate, so too you can do it to a dead person, and that does not fall under the category of nibel hames. So, so too here, if there is an ability just to remove what needs to be removed via a needle, so again, there is room to be lenient once again in this for the third reason that this is not considered nivel hames. This is not a full-blown autopsy. This is not the dissection of a body. 
but rather this is merely the removal of some uh, bodily fluid, shall we say, and that is not even considered nivel hames. So again, in terms of the extraction, there is a potential problem, but there are probably at least three good reasons that one could be lenient. Either because there is something more important here, for the sake of a child being born, that would be considered a tzorech, or because there's a mechila, because the person themselves does not mind that this be done, but rather quite the opposite, would encourage it to be done. And lastly, in fact, the entire procedure yeah, I understand there are different procedures, but the procedure can be done in a way where there wouldn't even be a question of Nivala Mesa, at least according to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's opinion, that mere extraction of a bodily fluid would not be considered Nivala Mesa. Now, assuming that we agree to go forward, the question is, in the event that this child is conceived after the death of the father, is there a familial relationship between the father and the child? Can a person conceive children after death? We have an understanding that as long as a person is alive, they have to do mitzvahs, they can't do averos, you have to do what's right, you have to do what's wrong. But once a person dies, the Gemara needed to say, the party's over. There's no more good deeds, there's no more bad deeds, there's no more deeds, a person is dead. In this situation, where the entirety of the process will be done after the father has already passed on, would there be a relationship between the father and the son? Now, why do we care? So, Social Security is important and all, don't get me wrong. That's, a, that's an issue. But that's not exactly what I'm going to focus on. There's a very, very interesting source that uh, predates this question by centuries. As a matter of background, in the event, this is a biblical commandment, that in the event that somebody dies without children, and he leaves a living brother, the, under perfect circumstances, the widow should marry the brother-in-law. That's known as Yibam, and that child, somehow or another, metaphysically, takes the place of the deceased. Now, in general... In the event that a couple gets divorced, the woman cannot marry her brother-in-law. That is a biblical prohibition. But, in this case, we actually turn around the prohibition, we make it into a commandment for this sake. Now, in the, what if a man dies leaving no children but leaves a pregnant spouse? So what we do in that case is we sit and wait. In the event that the woman gives birth to a viable child, the man has left children, no question. In the event that she would unfortunately miscarry, then you have to go through the process. Now, in order to have an idea, let's say the woman would do it, and all of a sudden, seven months later, right, she would have a child. And now we can't tell who's the father. Right? Was, the, was it a child that had a short gestational period from the second husband, or a longer gestational period from the first husband? So therefore, before we do anything, we are told that we have to wait three months. Three months gives us enough time, because the earliest we believe that a woman can give birth is the beginning of the seventh month, and the latest she can give birth is the end of the ninth month. So it gives us three months, that gives us the opportunity to have an idea of who is the actual father. The Nodebi Yehuda, who lived in the 18th century, asked the following question. 
The Talmud tells us, and I believe this is medically uh, agreed upon, that there's a certain amount of time between the time the fertilization of an egg and implantation. Three days, 72 hours. So the Nodi Behuda asks, well, wait a second. In the event that a child was conceived right before the man died, and it doesn't implant for another three days, so then shouldn't you be counting the three months from then? Right? Couldn't we still run into a problem because of that? So that's the question. It seems to be a little bit of a far-fetched question. But the answer ends up being a tremendously important answer. So the answer of the Nodi Yehuda is as follows. He says, in the event that a man leaves a pregnant wife and she gives birth, that child is his as far as we are concerned. However, if a man dies and his wife is not yet pregnant, defined by implantation, even if the egg that he went and fertilized implants afterwards, that will not be his child as far as Yibam is concerned. So that's why we don't wait. Now that statement, which seemed to be splitting hairs two and a half centuries ago, ends up being very important here. Because according to his statement, unless there is implantation prior to death, there is no relationship, as far as Yibam is concerned, between the father and the child. Now, of course, in this case, were we to have followed that opinion, we would have a situation where, of course, in this case, where there isn't even procurement yet, for sure there's not fertilization. If there's no fertilization, there's not implantation. It goes without saying that according to that opinion, nowadays, in the case, you'll have a child, but that child technically, as far as Yibam is concerned, we'll leave it, leave it at that for now, would not be related to the father. So even if this person thinks that they don't want to die childless, so biologically they will have a child, but in certain ways, halachically, they will still not have a child. The Nodib Yehuda himself states that this is perhaps only limited to the specific rules of Yibam and Chalitza. As far as Yerush inheritance goes, though, the child is still related. So therefore, it seems that he himself even takes a very narrow understanding of his Kiddush. And he's just saying that, in fact, yes, it says, Ubein Einlo, if he dies without children, you have to do this. So again, this is considered Bein Einlo. But perhaps, let's say the, 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 the uh, father was a Kohen, one can make a strong argument that your child is still a Kohen. And he gets called up by his father's name when he gets an Aliyah, etc., etc. So therefore, again, this, even according to this approach that says that there is no relationship, it's very narrowly constructed. Not everybody agrees with this opinion. In fact, the Karen Ora, who also lived long before this question came up, and he finds it hard to believe that, I can, that you can be a half-son. You're a son as far as, as, as Yerusha's inheritance is concerned, but you're not a son for this. So it's very hard to uh, defend 
such splitting of hairs. And in fact, Shlomo Zalman Orbach more recently came out with an opinion where he said that he also thought there was a lot of reason not to rely on this and to assume even in that case. Now remember, the case of the implantation after death is a much broader case than this case where you have to procure, but even the case of frozen embryos, you'd have the same thing. In the event that uh, there's been many, many cases, Avitsur and beyond, of people who have left frozen embryos, right, according to this understanding, even in that case where the couple created the embryos 10 years ago, and they've been sitting in the freezer ever since, right, in fact, this would also apply as well to say that that, as far as this is concerned, the person has no children. This isn't just theoretical. Such a case has already come up. And, the, and uh, the base that has already been approached in a situation of a woman whose uh, husband died, unfortunately, childless. There was a brother-in-law who was ready to do chalitza. However, she made it clear that the husband had left frozen sperm and she had every intention of using the frozen sperm. Now the question was as follows. Let's go back to a more normal case, shall we say, of a woman whose husband dies, doesn't have children, but she's pregnant. Right? She's in her fourth month of pregnancy. And there's a brother here. So one might think logically the appropriate thing to do is do chalitza. Right? Undergo it because, hey, either way, either way it's a winner. In the event that you that the child is, is, doesn't make it, there's a miscarriage, so she already did chalitza. And in the event that the child does make it, so no harm, no foul, they never needed it, but it was okay. The answer is no. The Gemara is very clear that a chalitza, while the woman is pregnant, doesn't work, and in the event there's a miscarriage, you're going to have to do it again. So the question came up as follows. Here we're dealing, that's if you're dealing with a woman who's pregnant, but this woman is far from pregnant. Right? She's a few steps away. Right? We're going to have to take the, the uh, sperm. We're going to have to try to fertilize an egg with the sperm. Right? After we try to fertilize it, we're going to have to try to implant it. And then even if we make it through that, then we're going to have to go through a pregnancy. So the question there is, in that case, can she? Is she allowed to, in fact, uh, do the chalitza at this point as long as the sperm is out there? Very interesting. Oddly enough, accidentally, almost Rebel Yashin wrote about this. Going back around 20 years ago, the uh, chief medical officer of the IDF came up with an idea where he suggested that all of the chayalim, all the soldiers, give sperm samples that are frozen, that in the event, God forbid, something happens to them, the family will have the ability to, in fact, use it later on to keep the line going. The question is whether is this a good idea or not. The question came to Rebel Yashif. Not surprising he wasn't excited about the idea. But among the reasons he gave was because as long as this sperm exists, if the, mother, if the wife doesn't know about it, the chalitza won't work. Which is a tremendous statement. I can't say that's agreed upon by everybody. But this idea out there that the question is what step already has to be done beforehand for this to be problematic. The last point that I will make, which is the third point, is, okay, let's say we can do it. Let's say we want to do it. The question is, should we do it? There are two chuvas that I know of that have been written on the topic. One by one is a short one by Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, 
Also, the Eretz Chemdekola has written about this, where they write as follows. It was mentioned earlier on that in these cases, there are several stakeholders. Of course, one of the stakeholders, probably the most important stakeholder, is the man, right? The wife, or the woman who's going to carry is another one, but there is the ever-important stakeholder, we all know from court, of the child. The unborn child has rights as well. And of course, as a matter of policy, it is always best to have a two-parent family. That is a halachic requirement. It's obviously something that we, well, one could make a pretty strong argument is something that we should always aim for. That being the case, is it really right to bring a child into this world, which from the get-go, we know will not have one parent? That's a question that should be strongly considered. Would we say that it's prohibited because of that? No. If a family would really want to do it, we would not stop it. But before a family does this, again, which is why I think a waiting period isn't such a bad idea, to understand what this is going to mean in the long run, not just for the single mother who's going to have to raise the child, but for the child that's going to be raised without a father, that is something that has to be taken into consideration. So at the end of the day, even if this is allowed, and even if we say that there is relationship, still one has to give a long, hard thought before they go forward with this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Flicker. Uh, we now have time for a few short questions. So, so, it, so it is a little bit aside. 
but uh, so therefore I, I don't want to give a definitive answer on it. But in general, as we said, the issue of autopsies and when we allow it is a major question. I think in the case of fetal demise, the additional issue is at what stage of development are we talking about? Right? If we're talking at a very <coughs> early stage of development, there is more reason to uh, be lenient in this case. A and B, what are you doing? If you're just counting chromosomes, I think also there's a lot of reason to be lenient in that case. Um, in the case of posthumous sperm, does it make a difference if the spouse is not physically capable of carrying children? Like if they had at some point, like you someone else to carry children, and now the father is dead, how does that affect? Well, you know, there's, in that case, there's no law. Uh, so if you're talking about the partner, spouse, requesting it, it shouldn't be a barrier for letting them There might be a question, and I've done about five or six feminist novels on this case, which may not seem like a lot, but I don't know anyone who's done So I've seen, I've seen a, a variety. And so it would be widely concerning. If they're young and healthy, they might not be able to get pregnant without hearing it, that would be a response. If it's because the couple was in their 50s or 60s, they already have children should have to have their age, that might be something that after the methodist might lose the But if she meant for losing surrogate, that I would view as not a huge revelation. Okay, we have time for one last question. As you know, one doesn't need to go to generic cabinets. I want to take skin cells and convert them to haploid cells fertilization. How does that impact the lot So I would think that in this case, not a lot. Meaning as follows. The issue of the issue of sperm procurement while you're alive, and Ashwasa Zerobatama, obviously, that is greatly impacted if I can name it out of the cheek. However, when we're talking about sending post-mortem, so if I'm going to allow you to scrape along with one part of the body, I'll probably let you scrape from another part of the body as well. So in terms of the fact that it's posthumous, I don't see that making a big deal. I think it's a much bigger deal when we're talking about procuring it while the person is alive. One more question, sorry. I'd like to you to regarding the Usher's opinion regarding the frozen sperm from IDF soldiers who may be different. How does he justify this because it's perpetually a lunas in Eric's world? I guess I'll just use my outdoor voice. So I, I, I would not say that he's perpetuating Agunas. Quite the opposite. Revel Yashiv was opposed to the project because he thought it would perpetuate Agunas. So it's quite the opposite. And in fact, that's why there is no such policy right now in Israel. So in fact, Revel Yashiv did not perpetuate Agunas, but in fact, he shut down this program in order there should not be such an issue. Thank you.